Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. everyone. Welcome to episode two of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as usual is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. Are you laughing because the first take that we did, <laughs> I called you a ho-coast? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we still snuck it in there, but through pointing out my error. So it's good to be back. We made it. Yeah, we, we turned up. We both showed up this week. I shouldn't have said that. That sounds like a sleazy boss when you turn up for your second day of work at a new job. <laughs> Sorry, everyone, you but we did come back. You turned up for your second day. <laughs> don't know why I'm working in the US, but anyway, <laughs> it is good to be back and we're pretty excited about the case that we've got to talk to you guys about this week. Before we get into that, a couple of quick notes about the show, True Blue, True Crime. It's a weekly podcast and we cover Australian criminal cases we release an additional exclusive episode to our Patreon supporters on a weekly basis. Weekly at the moment, we might stretch it out to fortnightly, but really as much as we can at this point in time. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to our Patreon page. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is super easy. You can even use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon episodes. We're going to do Q&As, behind-the-scenes material, blooper reels, and 10% off in our merch store when that's up and running. Our financial supporters on Patreon, they pay for the content we produce, which can be a lot of work at the end of the day, so you folks deserve that extra love. And we'll be doing shout outs for our new supporters moving forward. So we really appreciate the support anyone can give us on that front. But if you can't, if that's not something that's within your means, um, we appreciate you supporting the show on the regular episodes too. There's other ways that you can uh, spread the love for us and support us. Tell your friends and work colleagues. The word of mouth thing goes a long way. And Chloe's just done a Facebook discussion group for us this week as well. So you can jump on there, have a bit of a chat about the case that we've covered. It all helps. And if you do like the show, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever app you use and feel free to write a review too. Uh, We'll read out all the five-star reviews at the end of each episode. We'll ignore and delete the bad ones, obviously. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
So let's sombre the tone a little bit, Chloe, as we get our true crime hats on. The case we'll be tackling this week has us heading across the Nullarbor into the vast expanse that is Western Australia. But we're not in the outback here. We're in a pretty well-to-do suburb of Perth, and this case isn't really well-known outside of Western Australia, but it's got many tragic and intriguing layers to it. We're talking about the murder of Corin Rainey. Let's hop into it. Forty-four-year-old Corin Rainey left the community centre located in Bentley, a small southeastern suburb of Perth in Western Australia, around 9:30 p.m. on Tuesday, the 7th of August, 2007. She just finished attending a boot scooting class and was expected home by her husband and two daughters later that evening, but she never showed. Family and friends reported her missing immediately with concerns being heightened when she didn't arrive at her workplace where she was a court registrar the following day. Just over a week later, police located Miss Rainey's abandoned vehicle on Kershaw Street, Subiaco. A suspicious oil trail from the car led them to nearby Kings Park where her body was discovered up Wattle Track, buried head first in what was described as a deep bush grave. A clear cause of death was not immediately established. The ensuing police investigation in the following months narrowed over time to focus on Lloyd Rainey, Corin Rainey's husband, a prominent Perth barrister specialising in criminal prosecutions. Senior Sergeant Jack Lee referred to Mr Rainey, controversially, as the prime and only suspect in his wife's death. At this time, Lloyd Rainey was charged, but not for his wife's murder. He was charged for unlawfully intercepting the landline telephone at his Como residence. It wouldn't be for another three years until he was charged with the murder of his wife, Corin. The story between then and now twisted and turned with numerous legal proceedings including a defamation suit lodged by Lloyd Rainey against the state of Western Australia, until in 2012 when a trial by judge only, no jury, resulted in Lloyd Rainey's acquittal. So the question is, did Lloyd Rainey kill his wife? And if not, who did? So we're going to kick this one off, Chloe, with a rundown of the court proceedings against Lloyd Rainey, how that all played out. Then we're going to circle the wagon back around to go over some specific bits of evidence, alternate theories and suspects. That's how the case unfolded in real time. But first, we're going to play a really quick clip of Lloyd speaking with Tara Brown from 60 Minutes, who did a story on this case. She asks him the obvious question. We had agreed to meet and to talk sensibly without lawyers, just us, about how we can resolve whatever was outstanding. Was there anything that you were hiding from her? No. Nothing at all? No. 
Are you prepared to be completely direct and honest today? Yes. That everything you say here is the truth? Yes. Lloyd, did you kill your wife? No, I didn't. Whether you believe Lloyd or not, there's no doubt the media at the time really influenced the public opinion. I mean, Lloyd's house was egged, there were dead crows left in his driveway, and when he was at a local pub, a woman tipped the contents of a sanitary bin over his head, which was pretty gross. Pretty brutal. Yeah. Due to Rainey's prominence as a criminal barrister, it was successfully argued there'd be jurors bias against him. So when he was tried... Um, it was a judge-only case. The state alleged Lloyd Rainey killed his wife at their home and transported her body to Kings Park and buried it there. And Kings Park was essentially shrubland. It was overgrown. It had bushes and trees everywhere. It wasn't a manicured landscape park that you might take your kids to. Rainey's defence was that the evidence didn't implicate him in any way and that the police had a narrowly focused and biased investigation. In contrast to the defence, it was determined the police investigation, while could have been better in areas, had no evidence of misconduct. Saying that, it was pretty clear that the police didn't love this guy. The way they arrested him was a real shit show. Mm. They pulled him over on a busy main road in Perth CBD, got out of their cars with flak vests on right there in the street, like they were playing out some kind of cop show fantasy. It came to light during the trial that Corin Rainey had coronary artery disease, but this hadn't played a part in her death. The judge determined that somewhere between Bentley Community Centre and Kings Park, she was, quote, subjected to a violent assault that caused trauma to the intervertebral discs and the brain. Those injuries were not life-threatening, and it is probable that she was rendered unconscious rather than killed, Whoever attacked her and rendered her unconscious decided to bury her and transported her body to Kings Park in the rear of her own vehicle for that purpose. Ms Rainey also had pollens in her nasal passages from the local area in Kings Park, which indicated that she took her last breaths there, not near her home in Como. She was either killed there or buried there. It was determined that the police investigation... Whilst it could have been better, as you mentioned before, the judge said he couldn't find any evidence of misconduct. While it was substantiated, Lloyd Rainey had acted in a discreditable way himself. None of that evidence could be used against him in the case to establish bad character. So, Chloe, what do we know about Lloyd Rainey, the man? He was born in 1962. He began practising law in 84 and worked as a prosecutor in the Western Australian Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. At the time of his wife's death, he was working as a barrister in private practice. He was described as a quiet and measured person who maintained his calm demeanour and appearance even in situations of stress. He could be somewhat charming but was generally reserved and was proud of his profession, his reputation and integrity. Corin Rainey. She was born in 1963 and after graduating in law, worked for the Commonwealth Government before being employed by the Western Australian Government. At the time of her death, she was a register of the Supreme Court of Western Australia. She was not a quiet and reserved person, the opposite of her husband. She was friendly and outgoing and mentally strong and she was highly regarded in her profession. What about their marriage, Chloe? 
They were both described as being devoted to their two children, but they'd been an unhappy couple for many years. Lloyd was having an affair from around 2000 until 2003 when he moved to Bermuda, taking a position as senior Crown Counsel. When he got back, Corin was now aware of this affair and concerned by Lloyd's gambling losses. She constantly asked for financial records, to which Lloyd refused, uh, and without really getting into too much of the whole deterioration of their marriage, looks like things ended up in a formal separation in June 2007, which saw Lloyd move into the study at the rear of their home. Just quickly on the gambling losses, $115,660.35 over a 10-year period. But I read somewhere about the pair that they were earning a near-combined half a million dollars per year. That amount, while it's a lot of money that was lost, over 10 years, percentage-wise, it's not a huge chunk. I mean, it's around 10 grand a year. If you break that down into weeks probably a couple to a few hundred per week, a lot of people would spend that on alcohol and cigarettes, people earning far less than half a million dollars a year. So I just think that's interesting to point out. It was alleged Corin Rainey threatened to expose Lloyd's conduct at various times, which would have hurt him professionally. So in mid-2007, Lloyd arranged for the installation of a phone tap at their Como home so he could get the inside track. Gambling pun intended there, Chloe. And that was so uh, the conversations that Corin was having with her solicitor, he could hear those. He knew what he was doing here, I think. And the recorded calls were allegedly on a CD, which I'm led to believe from the research was subsequently destroyed or hidden. She was also quoted as saying to her sister, I think it was, that we need to turn up the heat on Lloyd. I'm living with a snake, well known in legal circles as a snake, it is intolerable. Now, that's a quote from Corin herself, not paraphrased. Lloyd was allegedly not welcomed back in Bermuda due to his womanising, and there was suspicion he'd secretly recorded face-to-face conversations with his wife. Despite all of this cat and mouse stuff, they were planning to meet with solicitors, as you said, Chloe, to discuss an amicable finalising via divorce. The assertion from police and the state was that Lloyd Rainey's behaviour after his wife's murder was very strange, which is what made him the prime and only suspect, apparently, along with the age-old statistic that tells us it's usually the partner. Chloe, now we get to the timeline on the night of Corrin's murder. Let's go through that. Yeah, and this was pretty critical information in the case in the end, so let's go. The Rainey's daughter, Caitlin, who was 13 at the time, went to a concert with family friend, Ms Shana Russell. Corrin Rainey left for boot scooting about 7.30pm, leaving Lloyd and their other daughter, Sarah, then aged 10, at home. When Sarah went to sleep between 9.30 and 10pm, Corinne had not arrived home. Sarah did not wake up during the night. Ms Russell brought Caitlin home between 10.40 and 11pm. The deceased car was not visible. Ms Russell spoke with Lloyd and he seemed normal, even invited her inside. 
Caitlin went to bed around 11.30pm. So it was alleged Lloyd killed his wife in the hour and a half window between when the youngest daughter went to bed and the eldest arrived home, hid her body and her car before heading out again after the eldest went to sleep to bury her body. During this time, he also got a digging implement that was never discovered. This time frame is interesting and the assumptions it makes is even more so. Tests were conducted on the following series of events, including a recreation of the dig by a stronger and fitter officer and also the time it took to walk back from the Kershaw Street where Corinne Rainey's car was found and their Como residence. It was possible, but it was improbable given the time it left for Rainey to clean up and rise and shine and get the kids up at 7.30 the next morning. And Lloyd was described as being in soft condition, mid-40s, sedentary job, back problems for years. This would have been no small task for him. But then there's the X factor of adrenaline too. But regardless, digging the hole, placing debris over it, making his way home on foot with likely a sore back, it's a stretch. For the following few days, Lloyd was in constant company and observation, including by police, who were specifically looking for any signs of an altercation, any injuries on him, and no one could spot any signs that he was injured or exhausted or even an altered demeanour at all. But this was apparently because of his skills and knowledge in criminal law, the state alleged. Who else could pull off the perfect crime better than this guy? The problem was the vast majority of physical evidence didn't support this theory. Well, there was one thing. A dinner place card with Lloyd Rainey's name on it was found within a short distance of Wattle Track. This place card was from a dinner on 28th of July 2007 and one could suggest he dropped the card in the early hours of the morning while burying his wife. Lloyd said after this that he drove his wife's car to the dinner, which could explain the card being near her car, but this later proved to be a lie when dinner attendees recalled he drove them home in his own car. So it's possible that he lied about the place card because it could have implicated him. There was also brick, paint and plastic on Corinne's clothing and body and the presence of a seed pod from a liquid amber tree in the hair of the deceased, which came from a tree in their front yard at the Como residence. This pod evidence is really interesting, Chloe. One of Rainey's defence team, and how about us as this guy sound, a former Scotland Yard detective, now forensic expert, Robin Napper, he had some pretty interesting things to say about this seed pod at trial. That particular pod was absolutely loaded with forensic material from Lloyd's home address. Quite clearly, that had been in contact with the driveway, with some of the bushes. There was even traces of paint that came off the window. Um, it was just totally unnatural what was found in that pod. So what are you suggesting? How did I'm it... suggesting that that was, that was planted. Who by? The police. People within the investigation. So whether you believe that or not, you have potential evidence that she was attacked at her home on the front nature strip and the place card near the crime scene but neither really proves Lloyd Rainey as her killer. Detailed examinations of the brick paving at the front of the house did not reveal any signs of dragging. The next part is very interesting to me, Chloe. The judge said that there was evidence of potential sexual assault. Corrin's blouse and pants zipper were broken. There was no mention of any other forensic evidence indicating sexual assault other than this. 
Lloyd Rainey, while he acted discreditably and suspiciously in many instances, wasn't proven guilty of the murder or manslaughter of his wife, Corinne. While we're here, Sean, though, let's take a closer look at the place card evidence too. Mm. I believe the prosecution really hammered at this. Well, they probably had to, seeing it was one of the only direct evidences linking him to the location. Yeah, this card's very interesting. So the photograph of the card found by park visitors showed an unexceptional white dinner card with a black border resting on leaves and twigs where they found it. On the front is printed Lloyd Rainey. On the back in blue text are, in handwritten capital letters, are the words, The Queen. Four days after Corin Rainey's disappearance, members of a family who had a relative die in Kings Park and who had been searching for his remains stumbled across the card on Lovekin Drive and contacted the police. The place card was from a legal dinner for Rainey's law chamber that was held the previous month on July the 28th. So the Queen was written on there as part of that celebrity heads guessing game that they, they played there. Rainey's secretary said he told her that the card and Mrs Rainey's car being found in the Kershaw Street location in Serbiaco was an attempt to frame him. Ten months later, Mr Rainey told a chamber colleague that he had actually driven the car to the dinner, as you mentioned before, Chloe. But two people at the dinner testified that they got a lift home from him in his own car. So where does that leave us? Well, Lloyd Rainey sued the state of WA for defamation thereafter for Senior Sergeant Jack Lee's comments referring to him as the prime and only suspect in his wife's death. We're not going to delve into the details of the defamation case. He did win and he was awarded over $2.6 million. But we're going to look into some interesting information that came out during the defamation trial pertaining to Corrin's murder. And from here, we can see the police investigation into her murder effectively stopped as far as, as we could see. I mean, they thought Lloyd was their man. They couldn't prove it. So it seemingly stopped. But I'm not so sure that it should have. Julie Porter was a family friend of the Rainies, and a few days after Corin's death, she came over to their home to visit her daughters. She said she was questioned by Lloyd Rainey about whether she had provided emails sent to her by Ms Rainey to the media. She said no, and then he launched into talking about security, at which point Ms Porter told him she had an alarm and a security camera at her front door. It was reported that instead of looking happy at this point about potentially uncovering a vital clue to his wife's murder, Lloyd Rainey went quiet, pale, until Miss Porter noted the cameras just for show didn't record and Mr Rainey appeared to calm down. Miss Porter actually testified to this fact. So she was cross-examined too and her and the barrister traded barbs about her leaking the emails and differences in statements she'd previously given and she went back at him about making money off someone's murder and he was like, no, I'm pro bono, something like that. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but he tried to make her look like a meddling neighbour. She did have emails from Corin on a CD that she gave to the police days after her murder. A Western Australian detective sergeant, Ian Moore, also testified, and I'm going to run over some dot points that he noted. Contrary to his colleagues' words, there were lots of other persons of interest, but it was Rainey's actions, behaviour, evidence from witnesses and physical material that raised further suspicion of him, plus that it's statistically likely the husband did it. He didn't think a random attacker would bury the body, and he said that there was no direct evidence of sexual assault or robbery as motives. They found $100 in the glove box, apparently. 
He also said Rainey had been spotted by a couple of people mowing the lawn of his front verge in the days after his wife's murder. Now, make of that what you will, but apparently the gardener had mowed it the day after his wife's murder, and Lloyd never did it, apparently, so it really stood out to them. I mean, why would he do it? He has the cash for a gardener. But uh, who knows? He might have had some downtime between legs of the quaddy that day, Chloe, and decided to bust out the victor and knit the tops off the Kaikuyu coming into spring. (laughs) (laughs) This detective was also the dude who performed the recreation of the dig, which we mentioned before, and he was a lot fitter than, than Lloyd Rainey. He reckons he knocked it over in just under 40 minutes and it could have been done with relative ease. But then, like I said, he wasn't Lloyd Rainey. He also cited Mr. Rainey's lack of cooperation, including not allowing police to conduct a second interview with him and his daughters. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So where are the rainy daughters now? They're in their 20s, living overseas. They've remained supportive of their father and his innocence, staunchly supportive actually, apparently which has effectively caused a rift between them and their extended family members, including those on their mother's side, which is probably understandable. Mm. And the case doesn't end there. There are so many twists and turns, as you mentioned at the start, Sean, and Mm. we're going to cover over some alternate theories and alternative suspects now. As we touched on, Lloyd Rainey was acquitted. The state failed to prove their case and subsequently Rainey's guilt and he then sued their arse and won. Now let's get to some of those alternate theories, starting with Johnny Montani. So this guy sounds like a gem. He is painted as some sort of underworld figure or at least a career criminal. He was a bikey associate, an alleged killer and potential hitman in this case and others. He was a former security guard and had links to this case because Lloyd Rainey defended him a number of years earlier when he was charged and tried for the murder of a coffin cheater's bikey named Kevin Woodhouse. He was acquitted of this crime. His house was raided and a whole bunch of stuff seized for forensic testing and then he went overseas shortly thereafter. Now, this all sounds really bad when you hear all of those buzzwords like that back to back, but when you dig a little deeper, I'm not so sure how this guy got thrown into the mix. He mightn't be the best bloke kicking around, that's for sure, but really the only link here is that Lloyd defended him in that aforementioned murder trial there, Chloe, where he was acquitted of that crime. He seemingly had an ironclad alibi for the night of uh, Corin Rainey's murder. There was CCTV footage of him having dinner at a restaurant during that short window that she was actually killed, and he was inevitably eliminated from this inquiry, as he probably should have been. But interestingly, the murder of Kevin Woodhouse, which Montani was tried for, it's a very interesting one in itself, so we'll dive into the details of that case in our Patreon episode this week. Now we move on to another guy who was thrown in the mix, probably purely through location and previously alleged crimes as well, Chloe. Yeah, so next up is Julian Watana-Murray. 
this scumbag, and scumbag is an understatement, but I think we would be censored out of the podcast game if I said what I wanted to. Um, I mean, he was acquitted of this next crime, but it's so gross. He was accused and later acquitted of kicking the pregnant girlfriend of an SAS soldier for $500 so that she would miscarry. Both men became early persons of interest, but they were also both eliminated early on. Then we go on to two other guys who were highlighted by Rainey's lawyers as not being investigated properly, Alon Lacko and Ivan Eads. Rainey's lawyers highlighted evidence about two other violent sex offenders who lived near Rainey's home and whom they claimed had not been investigated properly. Lacko bashed and sexually assaulted an 11-year-old girl as she slept in 1989, and weeks before this he raped a 29-year-old woman as she lay in bed next to her two-year-old son. So he's a fucking peach, this guy. He also lived in an apartment overlooking the community centre where Corin was last seen. Eads apparently had a previous murder conviction, one of the police noted on a, a scrawled notepad at one point, and he lived near the Rainey's home in Como. Ivan Eads' DNA was found on a cigarette butt recovered from the footpath outside the Rainey home, and that was about a week after Miss Rainey's body was discovered in the bush grave. And Alan Lacko was alleged to have boasted to an acquaintance before her death that a body was going to be dumped in Kings Park. Both of these dudes denied having anything to do with Corin Rainey's murder. At trial, Detective Sergeant Mark McKenzie was unsure if a search had been carried out at the home where Eads and Lacko lived as part of the murder investigation. He also admitted there were crossed out notations in his notebook dated October 15, 2007, which said Sex Assault, King Park, White. Below the notation was the name Ivan Eads, with another notation indicating the man had a previous murder conviction. Lacko moved to Geelong in Victoria in 2007 after Corin Rainey's murder, and he lived near a school and skate park there, surrounded by kids. So it was good to see they were keeping tabs on this guy. Darren Hinch would be choking on his bloody meat pie hearing that. Phone calls made from a payphone located on the Rainey Street on August the 7th and 8th, 2007, were made to the home of Ivan Eade's sister, but we don't have further details on those calls, but apparently they do place Alan Lacko at that phone booth at that time. We're going to get into more detail on Alan Lacko and Ivan Eades in our Patreon episode this week, making it clear that they've both denied any involvement in this crime, but they've both had their brushes with the law and caught in separate incidents in the past, so we're going to chat about that. Yeah, sorry, I'm still recovering from that Darren Hinch comment, but we'll go and we'll move on. Lloyd Rainey's defence didn't propose these guys as the killers, but more so highlighted that the police didn't investigate them properly and therefore zeroed in on Mr Rainey and run a biased investigation. The DNA puzzle, or probably better described as the drunken DNA dartboard, because at this, at the end of this, I had no idea who was what number, what score, what colour, and who was throwing the darts. So in the forensic tests, here's what they found. We'll try and condense this in dot points. So, Sean, do you want to start? 
I'll do my best, Chloe. They found two male DNA profiles that had been uncovered by a scientist working on the case. Checks were made against the national and state DNA databases, which carry 69 to 70,000 profiles respectively, but there was no match. Findings of many other inconclusive DNA profiles were, were also discovered. Mrs. Rainey's blood was found on the boot of her car, on the back seat and at the base of the seat. A man's DNA was found on her cowboy boots, but in insufficient quantities to make comparisons. Lloyd Rainey's DNA was found on the bottle top area of a water bottle found in Miss Rainey's car as well, but that doesn't really tell us much. No, there was more. The DNA of at least three people, including at least one man, was found on Miss Rainey's wallet. Mrs. Rainey's handbag carried DNA from two people, including at least one man. Mr. Rainey could not be excluded as a source of this. Two people appeared to have contributed to a weak sample of DNA found on a branch near Mrs. Rainey's gravesite. One was a man. A handkerchief found in Mrs. Rainey's grave carried the DNA of at least three people. One was a man. Mrs. Rainey's DNA was not found on the handkerchief. Further to all of this, just to make the circus even more theatrical, there are rumours that police were holding Lloyd Rainey in such high suspicion due to the belief that he had a gay lover and that his alleged lover was involved in the murder. The old gay lover. (laughs) Apparently this thing about the gay lover, it was said to a medical examiner and it was by a fairly high-ranking police officer at the time, an inspector I read. I'm not going to get into the names and details on this because it doesn't really hold a lot of water in in our view. Mm. There's no evidence to back this up. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary to this because... Lloyd Rainey's womanising was a relatively well-known thing. So who knows why this was brought up, but it was by that inspector. But it does lead us to a man, a detective, who unlike some of the previous we've mentioned, just might have actually followed the scent down the right rabbit hole in this case. They don't mention this guy in the 60 Minutes thing, Chloe. Like they don't mention a few other things. But this guy was named Detective Carl Casilli. Now, Casilli is an interesting dude. He's what the press would dub a disgraced former detective. He was sentenced to nine months jail in 2014 for 17 offences. Fifteen of those were counts of unlawful use of a restricted access computer system, unlawful dealing of an intercept warrant information and supplying a video record of an interview. And Carl was apparently obsessed with a former V8 supercar model. He gave her a bunch of this info. Now she's with this hotshot lawyer in Perth, so it's this intriguing web of an outsider cop, some beauty queen and her new high-flying Harvey Specter boyfriend. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like a great story, doesn't it? I might be putting a little bit of mayo on some of that. But Casilli, prior to his demise with all of this uh, charges we mentioned before, he was described as a pretty tenacious detective. Casilli provided some interesting facts in his testimony, Chloe. There were talk of a few items. The jacket she allegedly wore was seen on the bed, meaning she'd been home, but this was later disputed when boot scooters couldn't say for sure that she had a coat or let alone was wearing one at all. There was also a silver necklace and gold-rimmed Seiko watch allegedly taken from her body. She was apparently wearing these items that day and they were never recovered. These seem like strange items for Lloyd Rainey to take if he's the one who attacked and killed her and also strange that no appeal was made to the public about these items as they could directly link an offender. 
There were also mentions of hundreds of documents in police files alluding to attempts to try and find a hitman. And Cassilli followed this trail like a bloodhound, right to a guy named Alan Lacko, who we've mentioned before. This guy was quoted as saying he was going to cut the throats of people and die a mass murderer, and that Lloyd Rainey was going to get it first. He allegedly told an acquaintance, there's a body going in there, as they drove past Kings Park in 2007. Now, this unnamed acquaintance of Lacko said in the statement to the police that they were driving past Kings Park about four weeks before Mrs. Rainey disappeared when he said, a body's going in there, a body's going in there, twice. He said Lacko asked him to drive a car for me while I dump a body in Kings Park. But the acquaintance declined to drive. He said when he heard about the crime, he knew straight away that Alan was responsible. Carl Casilli said in court he'd taken it upon himself to look into Lacko and Ivan Eads. Casilli said it was a small investigation into Eads, but a large investigation into Lacko. Casilli travelled from Western Australia to New South Wales in 2009 to interview Lacko, and a search of his home was conducted. They found a diagram of the layout of the Western Australian Supreme Court where Corin Rainey worked and a page torn out of a calendar from August 2007, the month that she died. Cassilli obviously pressed about these items, to which Lacko said he had an interest in the Supreme Court building because he'd once worked at Kings Park, and apparently the calendar didn't belong to him. Lacko also admitted to dealing drugs in the community centre car park, where Corin Rainey was last seen. Cassilli said, quote, a lot of things about Alan Lacko struck me as lacking credibility, and he thought the acquaintance's statement implicating Lacko was significant and said, without doubt, I place a lot of weight on that statement. Lacko said, I didn't kill her. At the end of the day, I sleep peacefully. I have nothing to hide. He also stated he couldn't remember what he was doing the night of Corin Rainey's murder, but he was likely at home drinking. Lacko was pulled over on the day Corin Rainey's body was found. Apparently they pulled him over due to driving without a licence. Is that right, Chloe? I think so, yeah. yeah. The car he was driving had sand in the boot and he had injuries to his face and hands. Lacko stated that scratches were not uncommon for him and he had been questioned in the past about a long strand of hair found at Mrs Rainey's gravesite that police alleged was his. Police also alleged, I read in an article that Lacko was paid $25,000 to dispose of Mrs Rainey's body after she was killed. So, Sean, where does that leave us? Well, let's take a step back for a second and have a look at the suspects and motives. Lloyd Rainey has a clear motive. Who knows what Corin Rainey had in the chamber to fire at him in their divorce proceedings. She certainly wasn't one to roll over, and it's pretty well verified that their split was acrimonious. So he's definitely got motive. Could he have done it? It's possible in that time frame with that window, but it's not anywhere near as probable, in my opinion. If you look at the window that he had, the variables outside of his control with the daughters, one being in bed, the other one arriving home later on, I mean, if this guy was the murderer that they're suggesting, capable of orchestrating the perfect crime with his unparalleled knowledge of the criminal justice system, would he have knocked out his wife on the nature strip, driven her to a park miles away, buried her, stolen her watch and necklace, busted the car up on a bollard, then walked home just in time to clean up and fetch the girl's breakfast and then head into work? 
It's a hack job at best. And look at the way this guy operates. He's intelligent, allegedly secretly videotaping conversations, tapping the phone line to hear conversations, and he works a sedentary job, so he's pretty soft. But in all seriousness, if you look at how he operates, yes, he had the motive, we know that. Casilli had this pegged. Alan Lacko and Ivan Eads, their location puts them right there. You have phone calls to Eads' sister's house from the payphone in the rainy street on the night and day after. A cigarette butt with Eads' DNA on it at the front of the rainy's house, the place where they're alleging that she was attacked. And Lacko, his sordid history. And we have the map of the Supreme Court in his house. He lives right nearby. You've got the calendar page ripped out from August 2007, two years after the event. The car park drug dealing, the alleged hair found and the payment thing. I'm not sure how much basis there is to that. But you've also got the sand in the boot of the car and the scratches on his hand and face. We have the sworn statement of an acquaintance saying that Lacko said a body's going in there and asking him to drive. Now, Kings Park, I think, as you mentioned before, Chloe, it's not a luscious sort of botanical gardens. It does seem like a bit of a dumping ground if we're being frank. But what else does this tell us? It says that they were after a driver. I think it's possible Lloyd Rainey hired them to kill his wife and paid a substantial amount to do it. And that's where Corin Rainey's suspicion of him hiding assets and money could come into it. Alan Lacko and Ivan Eads could have been involved, hence the court map in his possession. Perhaps they were meant to get her after work, after boot scooting maybe, away from the home, but things didn't go as planned and there was a rush, a panic. But no direct way to link Lloyd Rainey or these other scumbags. And unfortunately, the police investigation just didn't get there in time. But it sure seems to me the line of thought Cassilli was pursuing held a lot more water than the original case that the state put forward at trial. It's also possible that it was a bit of a random attack too, Chloe. I think that was also suggested in the 60 Minutes documentary. Yeah, and I mean, I agree with everything you said. The police seemed so close so many times, yet not there at all each time. Rainey was paid over $2.6 million in a defamation case, as you mentioned before, and at that point it was the biggest payout ever in WA. And we've had a conversation off air that maybe that implies innocence, but... I'm not sure. Something I keep coming back to as well is the fact that his daughters were in the house. Even really bad guys I don't think would kill their children's mother outside the house Mm. while they were sleeping in there. I feel like that's crossing an unspoken line that I just don't think even if he was a bad guy he would do. I lean towards the hitman theory myself. I think that's why the evidence is somewhat compelling but also impossible to link to Rainey. He obviously had some contempt for Mrs. Rainey. There was distrust in the marriage, maybe from both sides. And despite that, there was just a missing link to any solid evidence, DNA or otherwise, linking Rainey. And, well, I guess we know that Rainey had a theory as well. He firstly said that he thought the police would rather let someone get away with murder than admit they were wrong. We're going to play the clip now where Lloyd puts forward his theory, as you mentioned there, Chloe. I don't know. I've asked myself that question many times. I don't know the answer. Was there someone who had a serious grudge against me because I'd prosecuted them before? I'd prosecuted police officers, I'd prosecuted politicians, I'd prosecuted a whole range across the spectrum. I don't know. I suppose that's also possible. There are so many things that are possible. (laughs) 
They sure are. The main thing I think about a case like this is that it's just sad for Corinne's family um, that it remains unsolved. Unfortunately, now they've gone, what, 11 plus years having no closure or peace. They haven't been able to um, bury their sister or mother properly knowing and having some closure. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think of the 60 Minutes episode? It was good. I mean, the fact that they dedicated a whole episode to this one story. Um, you guys can Google it and watch it yourself if you Google this case. I think some of the things that we thought were really interesting were missing, like the place card, for example, they didn't mention. And that was one of the only pieces of physical evidence that linked Rainey yeah. to the case, which I thought was such an odd thing to leave out. And I think that there was a lot of evidence about Lacko that they could have included other than he was a ship bloke that really yeah. linked him to the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the episode, look, it, it was good, but after that sort of initial hard-hitting question 10 or 15 minutes in, it really focused on how shit the state's case was and the police investigation, and there's no denying that. It was appalling. But it kind of never moved forward from that point about, well, what's the evidence, what do we got left, and who did kill her? Because... Someone out there is walking free who, who did do it. So mm. it kind of lost me there. But, yeah, they also didn't delve much into their marriage. And I think that's probably a, a part that the police really took into account early on in establishing the motive. Mm. Yeah, and I think one thing that came across in the interview is a certain arrogance from Rainey, which I could see might grind the gears to some yeah. of those police officers. You could see if you spent time in, uh, interrogating him, you would get pretty annoyed with him if he just had that stoic confident persona the entire time. It, it's it's off-putting when someone's like that, when they have that much confidence or just lack of social awareness to yeah. not adapt to the environment around them. I actually wrote and researched this before that even came out. So we only watched that tonight before we came to air and I actually wrote most of this back towards the end of last year. So it was kind of interesting to see what they'd included and what we had and that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think they don't have you researching, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, as per usual, we'll finish with a happy thought for the week so we can lighten the mood. My husband and I got a foster dog about six months ago and I've been nervous to leave her by herself and I tested it for 10 minutes this week for the first time and nothing happened. So Good. it's a really big deal. Um, I've been really worried about her so, and so much of my thoughts have been revolving around this dog and making sure she's okay. So it's a, a win and a happy thought that... You know, she's a happy doggy and things are going along nicely and she's relaxed at our house. Good, good. That's good news. Okay, so do you have a happy thought? Well, you don't really get a choice, but what are you <laughs> going to share this week for your happy thought? I do. My happy thought for this week, it's actually a future happy thought because I'm taking the, well, we're recording on a Wednesday night and we're going to be putting these out on Sundays, but I'm taking Friday off work. So that's going to be good to sort of kick back and relax, especially after uh, writing about things like this yeah. <laughs> all week. <laughs> that is always a happy thought. And you can get in touch with us as well if you have any thoughts or feedback about the episodes or maybe what you might like to see us cover. The email to get in touch with us is truebluecrime at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate the show. Join our Facebook group. If you search True Blue Crime on Facebook, you'll find the group. You can enter and we'll hopefully keep things entertaining and engaging. We might do some discussion points in there about the episodes and open it up to feedback as well. And we're also on Instagram if you want to see some pictures. We'll post pictures of victims and the perpetrators and things related to the case. 
We'll be back next week with another case here on True Blue, True Crime. Thanks very much for listening. We are going to jump straight onto Patreon now. So if you want to hear a little bit more about uh, those persons of interest and some of their pasts, jump on across to Patreon and get your, uh, get your Patreon on. Thanks again for listening, guys, and have a good one. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 